Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. We've all heard of planking. It took over the internet a while back. Then there was the rather short-lived ice bucket challenge, where friends challenged each other to film themselves dumping a bucket of ice water over their heads, and of course then posted on social media. Social media has a knack for making fads blow up. After all, humanity becomes a much different species when put in front of an audience. But social media didn't make trends happen. No, long before the days of TikTok and Instagram, there were examples of human beings doing ridiculous, pointless things solely for the sake of saying that they had done it. Consider, for instance, phone booth surfing. People took photos as they crammed as many friends as possible into phone booths, with the record being a seemingly impossible 25. But there is another fad, likewise pointless, that unnecessarily grabbed everyone's attention way back in 1939. It started, as these things often do, with a bet. A Harvard freshman by the name of Lothrop Withington Jr. bragged to his friends that he had once eaten a live fish. Being good college friends, they doubted him and bet him ten whole dollars that he could not do it again. Not wanting to be shamed at failing, Withington practiced for days, swallowing live tadpoles and baby goldfish. After all, practice makes perfect, right? The moment of truth came on March 3rd of 1939. Inside a building of the revered Harvard University, the student was encircled by his friends and by Boston reporters. And there, he did what fate determined he had to do. He swallowed the goldfish whole, after which he brushed his teeth and then sat down to a dinner of fried filet with tartar sauce. Had this been in the modern era, the video would have been liked and shared thousands of times, criticized for its grossness and undoubtedly blown up and spread to the far corners of the internet. But in the absence of social media, all it did was, well, blow up and spread to the far corners of the globe. Remember, there were reporters there, the social media of the day. Just a month later, Marie Henson, a journalism student at the University of Missouri, became the first woman to engage in the goldfish-swallowing craze. At the University of Pennsylvania, a student swallowed 25 all on his own, but not long after, a student at MIT became the champion, taking down 42. His reign was short-lived, though, as a Clark University student swallowed 89 goldfish in April. 89 goldfish. Down the hatch. Rivalries developed between schools. Like sporting events played out on fields and rinks, Students overcame intercollegiate obstacles by swallowing more live goldfish than their rival college and universities, proving once and for all that they were the superior institution, of course. Life magazine even picked it up on their March 1939 issue, making this fad a piece of American culture for all eternity. It didn't take long before a Massachusetts state senator drew up a bill to, and I quote, preserve the fish from cruel and wanton consumption. And it worked. The ridiculous activity had been thoroughly shut down, and all wayward attempts to reignite it were punished as, well, let's just say the stupid acts they were. As the old saying goes, give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day. 
but teach him to swallow one alive and whole, and, well, I'm not sure how that one ends. All I know is it's more than a little curious. By the 1970s, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union had permeated nearly all of American pop culture. From books like Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut to films like Dr. Strangelove, there was no escaping the threat of mutually assured nuclear destruction. In 1976, author Clive Kussler published a thriller about a mission to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean where there existed a rare mineral that could advance America's defense capabilities during the Cold War. The only problem was that the mineral had been kept aboard the Titanic, and so a plan was devised, per the title of the book, to raise the Titanic. Mind you, the book came out about a decade before Robert Ballard found the ship and discovered it had actually split into two when it sank. It was a wild, implausible scheme to return one of the most well-known shipwrecks to the surface. The thing was, Kussler's idea wasn't far-fetched, at least not to Howard Hughes and the CIA. It started back in March of 1968, six years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviets had deployed a fleet of ships and aircraft to the Pacific Ocean. They seemed to be looking for something. After some research done by the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence, it was believed that they were looking for a missing submarine. The K-129's captain had stopped reporting in with updates. And after three weeks without any word, the Russians feared the worst. The vessel had been a Soviet ballistic missile submarine carrying three nuclear warheads, each capable of reaching a distance of up to 1,600 nautical miles. The Russians looked for months, assuming the Americans had sunk it, but they couldn't prove their involvement. And even worse, they couldn't find their own missing sub. Eventually, they gave up and assumed that it was gone for good. What they didn't know was that the Americans had been listening. American intelligence had detected an implosion about 1,500 miles off the coast of Hawaii on March 8th, and they knew the location. It was clear that the missing nuclear sub had been found. All that was left to do was go down there and get it. Unfortunately, it was in over 16,000 feet of water. For comparison, the Titanic currently rests at about 12,600 feet, or roughly 2.5 miles below the surface of the ocean. This K-129 was another three-quarters of a mile under that. And so, just as the fictional U.S. government had done in Raise the Titanic, the real U.S. government started coming up with options for recovering the Russian sub, including one idea that involved inflating giant gas balloons beneath it. Unfortunately, everything they drafted up seemed impossible. So they turned to the one man who knew all about making the impossible possible, Howard Hughes. But first, the CIA needed to make up a reason for the project, to the outside world, Hughes would seem interested in mining the seabed for manganese, hence the need for his new 618-foot ship, the Glomar Explorer. In reality, Hughes was going to pull off the greatest heist in the world. He was going to steal a Russian sub, full of nukes. After testing wrapped up in 1974, a giant claw was delivered to the Glomar Explorer via a 51,000-ton barge. The plan was to have the claw mounted under the ship, reach down and bring the sub back to the surface where it could be stowed in a hollow moon pod in the lower decks. The recovery would take place entirely underwater, too, far from the prying eyes of Soviet ships and airplanes. 
Unfortunately, the recovery didn't go quite as planned. Hugh's team worked for weeks to bring up pieces of the sub while being observed by two Soviet vessels in the area. Most of the sub was lost, including the engine room and the control room. Pieces of the claw arm broke as it was bringing the sub to the surface, and what fell away was destroyed when it hit the floor again. But he did manage to salvage the torpedo compartment and its full array of nuclear weapons. So the plan, dubbed Project Azorian, wasn't a total loss. The Glomar Explorer was able to bring up several crew members as well, who were given official burials at sea. At least, that's the story the CIA told. In fact, we wouldn't even know it all happened if it hadn't been for a robbery at one of Hughes's companies a while later, where the files for the project were being stored. The story leaked and hit the press soon after. Despite its partial failure, Howard Hughes had done what nobody thought possible. He saved part of a Russian submarine by treating it like a giant arcade claw machine game. Who knows what would have happened if he had been the one to find the Titanic. Maybe Kussler's novel wouldn't have seemed so far-fetched after all. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.